Hashem, welcome to our weekly and we mean weekly Wednesday night cheer. Little Nishmas Yaakov Nachum and Sihir, Shalom Shalom, and Bashevachana, Shalom, Basibodlu, Abavram Shikhia. The Shabbos, Pashat Chazak, Chazak of Chumish Vayikra. Pashas Bahar and Bukhukesai together. Interesting note to see often time. It's never noted, it's never called Parshias Bahar Bukhukesai, it's the Pashas together. They're noted as one. They're considered one Parsha, Parshas Bahar Bukhukesai. This week's Pedic Pukhiovis, Pedic Hamiat Shem. And we will try to mention. A little bit in Gemara Seita. Pashat B'chukesa in its own right has an aliyah, of course, as we all know. The aliyah of the Teicha, as is in Kisavai. The curses that are given to the person, if not if not going to go in the ways of Hashem and not keep the mitzvahs of Hashem, and the Taylor goes on to enumerate different things that could happen and will happen to people, as such. Bar Sinai. The last words of the of the Chumash Eila Hamitzvah Shachetziv Hashem is Meisha of Bnei Yisrael Bahar Sinai. Meisha commanded to the Jews according to this, which Hashem commanded to Meisha to tell the Jews in Har Sinai. The beginning of the Chumash, of course, begins by Yikra El Meisha. And we have a yikra with a small aleph, aleph seira, a small aleph. This makes reference, pays ref, plays reference, pays tribute to the humility of Meshe Rabbeinu, as Meshe Rabbeinu was considered vaish Meshe onav meid mechol adam asher adama. It says later in Chumash Bamidbar. Meish Rabbeinu was the most humble person in the world, most humble person on the earth. Question, of course, becomes when the Tater wants to stress and talk about the humility of Meisha. Meisha was a tremendously great person. Mesha was more than just a person. Mesha, as we know, went up to Hasinai 40 days and 40 nights, three times. Thrice that he went up to 40 days and 40 nights. And throughout that time, Lechem Lechalti, Mayim Lechasisi. I didn't eat bread, 
Logic water. A man, a human being, first of all, the essence of just going up into heaven. Thirdly, secondly, the three times, thrice, neither eating nor drinking. And thirdly, the practically combat with angels. Going up against the angels who had protested, what is the human being doing up here? What does he want with the tailor? The tailor belongs here. Why are we giving away the tailor down to the human beings? And Neshul Abedin didn't say he did want, but he didn't have the chance, the opportunity, to just tell Hashem, explain it to them, why I'm getting, why the people are getting the tater, why they didn't get in the tater, rather than the angels staying with the tater. But rather, Hashem is Barak tells him, you answer them. You deal with them directly. <sighs> Honestly, where does humility factor into such a person's life? How could he possibly have been humble? I mean, there was no ifs, ands, and buts about this. Who this person, who Meshul Rabbeinu was. So how is it possible that a tzaddik like Meshul Rabbeinu didn't recognize a fish, supposedly, his greatness? What was he missing? Just for the people that are just joining, the question we are asking is, Meish Rabbeinu was known to be the most humble person in the world. Where does the humbleness come into Meish Rabbeinu? Did Meish Rabbeinu not recognize his greatness? I mean, honestly speaking. Um, they tell jokes of such things, of Anivas, of the person that got up and bragged about what, I don't know what, and after bragging and bragging and bragging, and someone said to him, uh, yeah. Yeah, he looked at him and he says to him, but I don't, and he said a, a little thing that he doesn't do, that he can't do, that he's not capable of, and then he says, no, how do you like my humbleness? After bragging for, for time on end, because he threw out one little bone, he said one little thing that he couldn't do, he considered himself humble. Um, this is Rabbeinu. Where does humility come into play here? Where does he not see in his own how great he was? Meshav Rabbeinu recognized his greatness. He knew how much he was able to grasp, how brilliant he was. He knew he was the one that was chosen to represent the Jewish nation and to take the terror, to bring the terror down to the world. He didn't attribute it to himself, though. Because he was humble, his great humility, Moshe saw this great gift that he was given from God. And Moshe said to himself, 
Had somebody else been given this great gift that I was given, had somebody else been given this great holy neshama, the soul that I was given, they would have probably done better than I do. This was the basis of Meshe Rabbeinu's anivas, his humility. So therefore, it's not a contradiction. We can understand how Meshe was capable of becoming an anav. Faket, the opposite. Because he didn't have any ego, and he was totally given over and devoted to God, every step of the way, every breath that he took, he understood was only the want of God. And therefore, he fought with all his essence to do the want of God and to fulfill it completely. This concept, because we know that every person has a spark of Meshe Rabbeinu in him, within him, as the Alter Rebbe brings down, Perik Mem in Tanya, Perik Mem in Tanya, every Jew has a spark of Meshe Rabbeinu. So these two concepts, these two opposites, each person has, and each person needs to use it as their approach to Tera. And this we find in the beginning of this Pasha. The name of the Pasha is Behar. Har is a mountain. But yet we say, Halavayu Har Sinai. I wish I was Har Sinai. If you keep your score at home, the Gemara Megillah of Tesamar Aleph. Chazal tell us the story. When God wanted to give the Torah, he began, he began to discuss on which mountain. Each one came and presented his case. Each mountain presented the reason it should be given on him. However, it was Hasinai that HaKadosh Baruch chose, the lowest of all the mountains, to stress the importance, the beauty, the greatness of humility. This brings a question to mind. Whoa, where is it? If HaKadosh Baruch wanted to stress the importance of humility, why did he look for a mountain and not a valley? Or even lower than that, a ditch. This is hinted a special way, as we said before, the different levels of humility. Humility from one side and raising up of Kedusha from the other side. 
A Jew is requested, required to have both these qualities within themselves. From one side to be an Indian of Tachlis, and with this, to be the strength and to stand forcefully on things that are tied and bound with God. The first condition, the Kabbalah Satera, each Jew needs to be their own mountain. According to the first, Halacha Shachanarach, one cannot be embarrassed in front of those mockers. I know what you're talking about. Person cannot be a valley. Twenty-nine side one. Got it. Kavtesa Maralif. A person is obligated to be bekirbei truna shel har to be his inside should be in a ra- raised up on the highest of levels of Kedusha. In order to stand and to overcome all obstacles, all difficulties, and to fulfill the want of God. On the other hand, the Har Hazeh needs to be low. Lower than all of the mountains. The person himself needs to be totally humbled before God. The entire approach to Taylor Mitzvah not enough. It does not have to be. It does not have to come in the Cheshbon of Anova. Yeah. But the truth of the matter has to be that the humility has to be the source and the power behind the person. And only through humility, a true humility, can a person overcome and give and become devoted and dedicated to one with Tera. Found it? Okay, thank God. Therefore, the parsha begins Bahar Sinai, the Tera Chumash Vayikra ends Bahar Sinai, and the Pasik, the put the first Pasik in the Chumash Vayikra is Vayikra al Mesha, also representing humility. This therefore is the message of Nas Tchilasan Basefim Vasefim Bitchilasan. That the beginning and the end are tied, intertwined one with the other. They are intertwined with the concept of humility. And since Vayikra Leviticus. I got that one right? Yeah. There's only Devarim I can't say. Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is involved with Karbonis. Teaches us, known as Tedes Kahanim, the Karbonis that a person brings. Each Karbon is a 
in the essence, a concept of humility, that a person says, I'm bringing this bird, I'm bringing this flower, I'm bringing this animal, this ox, this sheep, whatever it might be, and instead, as a forgiveness for the sin that I have committed, this humbles a person. And therefore it's apropos that this very Chumash, discussing Karbanis, should begin and end with the concept of humility. Several hundred years ago, the time of the Alter Rebbe, a man, not in the area of the Alter Rebbe, totally normal family man, living a totally normal family life, one day had gone mad. He lost his mind, he started screaming, thrashing. Nobody had any idea what it was. Family was shocked, the friends were shocked, everybody tried to help, neighbors. Their local rabbis prayed for him, but the man was off his bunker. The doctors tried to figure out what was going on. Palms were up. They had no idea what to do. They've seen such cases where a person all of a sudden snaps. But eventually it faded away and then the person came back to normal. They had a little bit of a nervous breakdown maybe or whatever it might be. Here this fellow was not snapping out of it. To put him in asylum was out of the question. The best thing they would do there only probably for him was put him in a solitary confinement. Or with other dangerous maniacs. Finally, someone suggested they take him to the Alter Rebbe. So the family managed to subdue him enough to get him into the carriage, and only a short time later they were entering the Rebbe's office. As they came into the Alter Rebbe's office, the man became totally, totally subdued now. He was just in awe. And he grunted little snorts, but he wasn't jumping around. A little bit, he moved his hands. The devil was looking at him very, very sternly. Finally, the al asked everyone to be seated. He wanted to tell them a story. This is a shock to everybody, a story. They came here for a bracha. They came here for a Yeshua, for a healing. And he's telling them a story. But the Alter Rebbe asked, so they sat down. And the Rebbe began, the Gemara, if you're keeping score at home, Nun Zayin Amid Beis, in Mesechta's Gitten, 57, side 2 in Gitten, tells the story that when Nebuchadnezzar entered destroyed the first base of Mikdash. One of his generals noticed a pool of blood bubbling and boiling on the ground. In the middle of the Chatzah. And when he asked what this is all about, they said there was a prophet whose name was Zechariah. This is not from the Zechariah, from the Neviim, or the 12 Neviim. It was a different Zechariah. His name was Zechariah. 
And he was killed unjustly. The other Navi Zechariah was later in Beis Sashani. The story went, the story was told, okay, you got the books. The man is the man with the book, 57, side 2. Check out the story of Nebuchadnezzar going into the temple. So the story comes by comes over there. So the story was that he stood in the temple, the courtyard, and he started to enumerate the sins of the Jews, of all those that were around him. And he was metting out some harsh words, words of warning, reproof. And the Jews got so angry at him for what he was saying, they stoned him to death. That's the commonplace knowledge of the story. That's how the story went. However, says the Alter Rebbe, it's a total different story. The motive of the people that killed him was a much more positive motive. Then the Rebbe looked at the man, this man that was off his mind, and then at the family, he made sure everybody was listening, and he continued. So the fact is, the people that stoned Zechariah were tzaddikim. They were very holy, refined, totally righteous people. Probably the only people of that generation that did not sin. What happened, though? This Navi was reprimanding. Their opinion was to convince and to turn the tide of the Jews and to have them repent. As soon as Zechariah began to speak, they understood what he was about to say. Aside from the reprimand, he was going to prophesize the destruction of the temple, the goals of the Jews, into Bavel. And they knew that once his words entered into a prophecy, the prophecy would come into fruition. And once this would happen, God just protect us from this. They wanted to stop him. They wanted to stop the Jews ending up in exile. They wanted to at least delay it, at the very least. But they knew that once he said this, as they say in America, they were toast. So they decided in one minute, the same second, they had to do the ultimate sacrifice. Even if it's going to cost them this world and the world to come and everything else, if they kill a Jew, they're going to die as murderers. They didn't care about themselves. So great was their Aves Yisrael, so great was their brotherly love, all they wanted to do was stop him from prophesizing the gullus and the sins of the Jews and destruction of the temple. 
And the only way they could stop him, they saw, was killing him. So obviously, the question begs to ask, if it was such a horrific act, such a horrible thing that was going to happen now, if this prophet would prophesy the exile, the destruction of the temple, then that would cause it to happen. Why did the prophet himself not stop it? Why did he not refuse to say this? He knew what was going to come out of this. Why did he just keep quiet? And if you're going to try to explain, now that I'm just talking now, that if he did so, he'd be punishable by death, because a Novi that refuses to say Nevoah is punishable by death, punishable by death, as Jonah from the mouth of the whale. So why didn't he sacrifice his own life? Those who killed him wanted to sacrifice their lives. Where was his Messias Nefesh for a fellow Jew? Did he have less Avis Yisrael than these other people? What was going on in his mind? Elamai, the truth is, we have to understand what the concept of prophecy is all about. When a Navi, a prophet, prophesizes, it's beyond his control. It's not something that he himself brings out, that he himself thrives with all of a sudden. But rather, he is only a vessel for Hashem's message. And it's Hashem that's ultimately relaying the message. He's the conduit. So when he was commanded to give a, say this prophecy, relay this prophecy, there was no way he could stop it. His whole existence was only so that he could be this conduit for God's word. On the other hand, the people that killed him, they had free will. They could have killed him or not killed him. But they wanted to stop the tragedy. And therefore, they were in essence right. They gave up their lives for their fellow Jew. This was the Altarebbe's Psach. This was his judgment on this story. As soon as he said this, this, this man started to tremble. For a few seconds, he closed his eyes briefly, and then he smiled with relief and began to breathe easily. He was cured. The Rebbe and the family saw this, and they all were amazed. They were amazed, Akhopanim. And the Rebbe explained as follows. The tortured souls of the tzaddikim who murdered Zechariah went into this man's body in the hope that they'd be brought to someone who could find some redeeming, redeeming quality in the sin that they had committed, and free them from Kafakela. They were in eternal limbo. This eternal limbo, they were not in Gehenim, they were not in Ganadin, they were nowhere. They were floating. It's almost two and a half thousand years, says the Alter Rebbe. 
They've been seeking to have this story corrected. And they could not enter anywhere because they were the sin of murder. And even the gates of hell would not allow them in because of their pure intentions. That's why you came to me, the Alter Rebbe said. When I was Malamit's Chus, when I found merit for these Sadiqim that killed Zechariah, I made what's called a Tikkun Neshama, a correction on their souls, and therefore they were healed, and therefore they were able to leave your father, he tells the family, and that's how it was he, he became healed. Again, falling into the category of the self-sacrifice, the abnegation, of the tzaddik, the devotion the tzaddik has, willing and ready to give himself up, to give up everything for a fellow Jew, as was Meshe Rabbeinu, and therefore we learn the Anivas of El Har Sinai, of Meshe Rabbeinu. The Haram B'chukesai, in essence, contradict one another. Bahar is the generalizations. Manos Hariba, missing a book. Book found. The generalizations brought down of Shemitah, etc. And Bechukhaisai makes reference to the Chukim. If you will go in the ways of my chukim. Now, chukim, we know, are mitzvahs that we don't know the reason for. Mitzvahs that have no reason. But yet, Rashi doesn't understand. The actual translation in If you follow my statutes and observe my commandments, you perform them. Rashi says, I would think it's making reference to the doing of mitzvahs. When he says, My mitzvahs you should keep. It says it already. So what is the words in teaching us, says Rashi? It's telling us that one needs to be totally, totally dedicated. They should toil in the study of Tera. telling us that studying Teda is not enough. A person needs to toil in their study of Teda. And this is, comes from this Basak, Imbuchu Kaysai, referring to the study of Teda as statutes. Generally, Chayk, statute, refers to a mitzvah that has no logical explanation. 
And therefore, we observe this mitzvah, we observe this commandment. It's toilsome on an emotional level. And a person to actually do this, it's great sacrifice. A logical person to act in a way to do something that defies rationality, defies explanation, sacrifice. And therefore the term chok, which virtually is synonymous with the word challenge difficulty. So we use this in context to Taylor's study. Rashi understands that chok is a reference to Taylor's study here that it needs to be challenging and toilsome. Even if a person doesn't enjoy it necessarily, one needs to sit and study Teda. This is what makes reference when he says, Not only study Teda, but toil in the study of Teda. <laughs> what is toiling in the study of Teda? Honestly speaking, in the days of yesteryear, the person that lived in poverty, impoverished, barely any food on the table, but yet they sat and studied Tata day and night. Oh, his person toiled for Tata. Sometimes on the cost of others. But they studied. They worked in Tata. Sometimes today's day and age, we got to work. Sometimes, not every time. Sometimes people go to work. A lot of people are scared to go to work because the IRS is down the back right away. Yeah. Even the IRS wants to close down for that. Yeah. Ask Trump. <laughs> um. They go to work, they have a hard day, and they come home and they're exhausted, and they want to just eat dinner, say hello to the kids, say Shema and go to bed. Nothing more, nothing less. That's providing, of course, they dive married before they came home. In the summertime, people come home, and it's not time for marriage yet. And it's big mysterious nefesh to get up and go out to Mayrev. To go back out of the house when you don't have the shul across the street or around the corner. And sometimes it's a 10 minute walk or a, a 6 minute drive. For a Mayrev in the middle of the night, it's, it's, it's mysterious nefesh. That's why you have a lot of communities, they don't have Mayrev together. Towards the evening time, they might have unfortunately earlier now, and they have to remember afterwards to say over Kriyashma later, and today they have to also remember to say Tzvira Saimer. Tells us, Teda, that you need to toil in Limelat Teda. That same abnegation, that same mysterious leverage, a lot of times people are going out to Mairev at night, it becomes a social hour. So you get to see your friends, you discuss how the, how the day went, 
how the work went, how the market was, what you bought, what you sold today. Sometimes might have took longer than Shachas. But tell a person that you need to have a Kvias Itam Lateda every day. You need to have a study session of Teda every single day. Whether it be in the morning, whether it be in the evening. It says, in the morning, I, I can barely tear my, tie, my eyes open. I'm happy if I make it to Baruchu in Shul in the last minion. And I'm happy if I can stay there till after Shemnesseh because I'm rushing to get the train, I'm rushing to get to my office. So the morning's out of the question. I'm not a morning person. Don't ask me to get up before 7.30. Please, that's ridiculous. It's downright borderline wicked. Okay, Tatla, I understand you. So do you know what? At night after you go to work, when you come home and you eat dinner, find yourself a shear. Today's day and age, Baruch Hashem, there's shear.us, and probably another couple of hundred thousand shearim online. You really don't need to go anywhere. You can sit by your computer where you're anyway going to be sitting and reading the news. We anyway going to be sitting and sitting and checking the sports. You got to find out. I mean, who's buying newspapers today? You're sitting there. You're finding out who's in the playoffs, who's in the who's in the playons. What, what we're in the basketball season, right? We don't know. Okay, the IRS is not aware. They're not charging the basketball players for their taxes. I think there's hockey also. You finished hockey already? A bunch of old men got out on the ice, and then all of a sudden. A fight broke out, and then they threw down a puck and said, play ball. Okay. Um, so you're sitting by the computer, regardless. And if you're a really, really tech guy, a high-tech guy, you got your phone, or your tablet, or your who knows what, what am I looking at now? Take out your Chayenu. Take out your Dvamalchus. Tune in somewhere and listen to a 10 minute, a 5 minute, a 20 minute shir. Find yourself a Kvias Itim Lateda. This is called Amelim Bateda. This is called toiling in Teda. It's a kunz, my friend. It's not a simple. Sure, I can do it. But to find yourself every single day a few minutes, it does not have to be 45 minute hours here. Once a week you should have an hour here, yes. But every day to have a few minutes a study portion of Teda. This is called a Melim Bateda. And it's imperative on each and every Jew. It's not a suggestion, not a recommendation. Not a request, it's imperative. Because ki heim chayenu v'yerech yameinu. Allow us to turn a little bit to the end, to Vayikra, chapter 25, verse 47. Whoops. 
<laughs> Do I get a free, free subscription for Chayeno? Actually, I wouldn't know which way to open it. I don't even use the Vamalchus because I like the good old books. God, you know, we were given books when we were kids. Find it in the book. Um, I like the format of Chumash and of Rashi and of... I can't relate to the upside downs. Gemara is, of course, is in definitely that way, but I know we still have to do Pergavison. Umocha chicha ima even nimkar in the ger, seishav imoch ila ay laaker mishpachas ger. Your brother becomes destitute. With him, is sold to a resident, non Jew among you, or to an idol of a family of a non Jew. The Gemara Masech is Kiddushin, if you keep your score at home, it's Chaf Amit Aleph, and turn the page to Amit Beis as well. You can get both sides of the page. 20, side A and B. The series of laws discussed in Pashas Bahar, as depicting the downward spiral. No, not in the house. Kedushin has left the house. Okay. <laughs> Both spiritual and financial. This downward spiral of a person who is not careful in his observance of Torah laws. So at the beginning of the Pasha, the Torah admonishes us to observe the laws of Shemitah which is to rest from agricultural work on every seventh year. Then the Tata talks about the laws of selling property, about loans, about selling a person's self as a slave. And the Tata is warning us, says the Gemara, should one refrain from what needs to be done on Shemitah year, eventually he will find himself forced to sell his personal belongings, his inherited land, his home, borrow on interest. If he still doesn't do tshuva, eventually be forced to sell himself as a slave. Well... This is the the ladder that the Tata tells us will happen to a person, but not just as a slave. First, he'll be a slave of a fellow Jew, then to a Gentile, and then even to an idol of the family of an Anjou. Rashi and the Gemara over here comments as well as he does here in the Chumash. And he interprets selling oneself to an idol as the lowest link in this chain of descent. Which means selling oneself to a person that's an attendant of idolatry. Not to serve the idol, it's not as a deity, chop wood, draw water for its service. To Nabuch work to make sure the people are serving the idol. 
And Rashi's negation of the possibility is what the Al-Tarebbe writes in Tanya from all the parochim between Yud Ches to Chav 18 to 24. The core of every Jew is a super rational attachment to God. And therefore, even the worst, the lowest, the most charis sinners ultimately sacrifice their name, sacrifice themselves for the sanctity. They die on Kiddush Hashem. And they'll suffer torture rather than, die, than deny God. They don't understand what they're doing or how they're doing it. They don't have the knowledge for it or they denied it all these years till now. But they will not they will give up their lives rather than deny God Himself. Rather than renounce that God is one. Therefore, says Dalta Rebbe, if a Jew was conscious of his soul's undaunted desire to cleave to Hashem, he would never be willing to sever himself from God. And he'd be able to overcome and defy the will by transgressing any mitzvah. It's only this aspect of the soul is dormant in the wicked, but it's never absent. It's just inactive. But as long as their knowledge and understanding are preoccupied with mundane pleasures, they're overcome and they don't see how the neshama is suffering. When they're confronted with a test of faith, the touching of their very soul, this stirs up the whole insides and it wakes up and it pokes the, the sleeping lion and therefore brings itself to withstand the test of faith in God. So this is what Rashi is coming to tell us. Even a person so spiritually debased that he can sell himself as a slave to an idol worshiper, which the Taylor does not want him to do, or an attendant of idolatry, but he would never go a step further and worship the idol for pay, even only outwardly. This is the great power of the Pintle Yid in each and every Jew. Before I still wanted to do something else on the Parsha, but I don't want to miss out on Pichyavis. We're going to discuss today Perek Hay, which is this week's Perek Hay, Perek Hamishi, Mishnah Zion, the seventh Mishnah. And of course, the seventh Mishnah starts with the word seven. Not just the title, not just the number, the saying is the seventh Mishnah, but the Mishnah starts off Shiva Devarim. And it's very, very interesting to note. Shiva Devarim Begoylam 
v'shiva b'chacham. Seven things that identify a foolish person and seven that identify a wise person. Ironically, we're going to find the Tana of our Mishnah contradict himself. You got the Mishnah? Okay. Perik Hey, Mishnah Zion. Fifth Perik, seventh Mishnah. We started Shiva Dvarim Begoylam, Vishiva Bechacham, seven things that are by a foolish person and seven by the wise person. Chacham. What does the Chacham do? Firstly, He does not speak in front of someone that's greater than him in wisdom. Uvaminian and in age. You sit quiet. First, second thing, He does not interrupt while his friend is speaking. Thirdly, He does not rush to answer. He thinks through before he answers. Fourthly, he asks questions that are relevant to the subject and replies to the point. Fifthly, and this is the question that we have on our Tana, He's organized. And he takes the priority first and then less important matters last. And Shama is something that he didn't hear and he's not sure about it, you don't go make it up. But rather you confess, Aimalesha Mighty. You say, I did not hear about it. and ultimately the seventh thing he acknowledges the truth. When he's wrong, he does not fight tooth and nail, but he says, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I admit it. Then says the Tana two words, V'chilufei and B'gailam, and the foolish person is just the opposite. So Tana, I'd like to ask you a question. On item number five, where you say, you speak organized. And you say the first thing, you repeat about the first thing, and the last about the last. But yet, you begin the Mishnah, seven things by the fool, and seven things by the wise man, and you go and start talking about the wise man, and then you mention the Gailam at the end. So where's your priority? Why are you not organized the way you're saying it? LMI. First of all, we have to know. When you live the lessons, Pirkei Yavis is teaching us lessons, life lessons. 
learning and living these lessons enhance Pashat, your learning experience. And you Pashat, gain wisdom. A person, a teacher is older, has a lot of experience, all these things you can benefit from, from a person that's aged and has experience, etc. Another thing, when your friend is asking a question, don't say, I have a better question, I have a more important question. Perhaps, first of all, the friend might ask the same question you have. And therefore your answer will come through there. And even not, you still need to listen carefully to what your friend has to say out of respect so that you understand the priority of life. And recognizing that you always could learn more is the first step to learning something new. But our Tana, what are you saying? So the answer really is that it's the Derech HaMishnah. This is how Tanayim used to speak. When they would say, they would enumerate a few things, then they would ultimately continue on the explanation on the last thing first, which here in essence is the priority really, because the priority is the Chacham. We don't want to know what the Gerland does. We don't want to tell a person the negativity. So what's so wise about answering questions in order? Because a person doesn't always ask the questions in the order of priority. But an intelligent person realizes which question is really the most important and which is the less, the lesser. And therefore, and therefore, the more important subject here is the Chacham. And why? Because we need to always give over a positive message. Whenever possible, a person needs to speak positive. Therefore, the, the Mishnah first enumerates the seven constructive habits of a wise person and does that clearly. And when it comes to the negative traits of the fool, it merely mentions it almost in passing. It just makes a reference saying the opposite. But it doesn't actually delve into it. Because Teda teaches us we need to work on our positivity. And this brings about because he is continuing the flow. He says seven things, the Golem, and seven of the Chacham. What are the seven of the Chacham? Because I'm talking to you about Chacham. I mentioned Chacham last, so I'm not going back to the, to the, to the Golem, first of all, and secondly, because the Golem's attributes would not be beneficial for us. I don't want to tell you how not to be, I want to tell you how to be. Wisdom and honesty 
are the biggest thing, the biggest attributes that a person has to learn how to be makritayv. To have a karasatayv for somebody that helps us. Rather than a person convincing themselves that they accomplished everything on their own, they should understand when somebody else helped them. And this is the seventh attribute of the wise, wise person, acknowledging the truth. By acknowledging the truth, you know who you have to be thankful and how you have to be thankful. When he says, al rishain rishain, it can also be the first as first. Recognizing the people of previous generations, the first generations, were greater than we are today. Rabbi Yechanan once said, if the earlier generations were the level of angels, then we're like regular people. But if the earlier generations were just regular people, <laughs> we're at the level of donkeys. But the person needs to be very careful in how he talks. And we've told the story, and I told the story that even I told you we wrote a song to the story of Revolt Kitsis, the Talmud of the Bashemta that took a journey. He wanted to go to that. So the Bashemta warned him to be very careful how he answers any questions. And when he ultimately gets stuck on an island, then he answers quickly that everything is God is great and He'll help and always be good. And this was not the answer that was looked for in heaven. The answer they were looking for at the time, said the Hashem told him upon his return. The answer they were looking for is the answer Avram Avinu keeps crying out for that the children in Golis are not happy. Children in Golis are not where they belong. The children in Golis need to be redeemed. They need to be redeemed now. And therefore, they, you are the barometer. You, Revolf, said the Balsham HaKadosh. Had you said the Jews in exile are suffering, the Jews in my country are suffering, they need to return to Israel, to the Holy Land, then we would have been granted the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. And therefore that needs to always be on our lips. And we have to always be able to say Medarf Mashiach, my uncle of Shalom, Rabbi Yechil Hecht would always say Fete, uncle, Yechil, what's happening? How are you? Mavart of Mashiach. This is his answer always. We're waiting for Mashiach. And this is something that we wait for, we anticipate, and we are hoping, and we're looking forward. This Shabbos Mavarchim, Chedesh Shivan, as if I didn't, didn't mention that it's Shabbos Mavarchim this week, and we're benching the new month, the month of Sivan, and in Vyat Hashem and Amal we will go to Gimel Sivan, which will be the wedding of our. Uh, Children, Shatev Mitzlachas, and that month of Sivan, the Indian of Kabbalah, Satera, Matantera, for the first 12 days we will not say Tachtan, we'll talk about this next week, Mitzvah and we should find ourselves this Shabbos and Varchim, before we start the new book of Numbers, by Midbar, by Mincha, we should be laying already in Yerushalayim, Merakedesh, with Mashiach Tzidkenu. Shabbat Shalom to all.